Podcast time is here again. It's real to real, all my good friends. Welcome back to Real to Real, America's number one movie podcast. Please don't look it up. Uh, I am your co-host, Chris Barfield, joined by my other co-host, Jackson Curtin. Hello, everybody. I couldn't think of an adjective to give you, so I gave you none. Uh, you know, police do constantly describe me as nondescript, so yeah, that's fair. It's probably the best thing to be described by the, uh, the police as mm-hmm. nondescript. Yeah, Sting is just not a fan of me. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> good. You don't want to be a fan of a guy who does tantric sex. I mean... I'd be down. I don't know. Gross. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to our very <laughs> unspecial, unremarkable podcast Hold episode. On. It's not unspecial. It's pretty special. I mean, this is Shane Black Day. Come on. It is Shane Black Day. It's Shane Black Day. I'm super excited. In my household, we call it Shane Black Moss oh, because I'm yeah. a Latino and Moss means more. Mm-hmm. So, I'm like... More Shane Black, please. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I definitely felt that way uh, when I was watching our two featured films uh, this week. Uh, we got some good films coming up. Because uh, I think right off the bat, we should say that we're both pretty massive Shane Black stands. Mm-hmm. And uh, in our mind, besti- despite like some minor faults of his own, just as a uh, filmmaker, just because all filmmakers have their own idiosyncrasies, mm-hmm. uh, we both really enjoy his work and what he puts out there. Yeah, no. Uh, I love the just the way that he really emphasizes like the the buddy cop kind of films, but kind of also not really subverts them, but kind of pushes them into this weird place that is completely unnatural, but also entirely entertaining. I think this will be an interesting episode, too, because we'll be talking about two films mm-hmm. where he is coming at them from a different creative output, one where he's the writer director and one where he's just the writer Back in the day when he was America's number one screenwriter who mm-hmm. was selling scripts for like millions of dollars. And uh, w- which was funny because then the films that he sold for those insane amounts of money ended up becoming flops. Yep. One of which unfairly, which mm-hmm. we will talk about today. Definitely. But first, right out the gate, we got to do our movie review time. Play mm-hmm. the jingle. Bing, bing, bong, bong. Jingle over. <laughs> so uh, the film I saw. Uh, recently was a small film by the name of Call Me By Your Name, mm-hmm. starring uh, Timothy something and mm-hmm. Army Hammer. Yep. And also, what this face from a serious man? I can never. Oh yeah, Michael Stuhlberg. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, love him. He's so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this film, Call Me By Your Name, it's based on a novel of the same name, mm-hmm. uh, and it is ultimately the story about this young seventeen-year-old boy who's idly hanging around with his family in their Italian villa. Uh, they are American, Italian, and Jewish, so they are both people of the country and a little bit out of step with the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father, who is something of an archaeologist, has a uh, an intern slash assistant come in, played by one Army Hammer, mm-hmm. who is a dashing American who wears absurdly short shorts the, almost the entire running time of the film, and uh, sparks off. Something of a taboo romance mm-hmm. with uh, our young lead. Uh, yeah, it's, and this is a uh, you know something that I I was curious about this film, especially the um, just kind of the, the part of everything that's happening right now, especially in Hollywood. Like, w- was it really the best choice to do a story about a minor and an adult having a romantic relationship? And uh, what I was kind of curious is. Um, do they portray it as like a full-on romance, or is it kind of more uh, a cautionary tale almost? So, uh, yeah, I actually thought that too, because I actually tried to know very little about the film going into it. Mm-hmm. So I actually did not know that the lead character was technically a minor. Although there's a couple things that uh, a couple of constituents that need to be placed out. So for one, this place uh, t- takes place in Italy, mm-hmm. where. Even back, the film also takes place in 1983, mm-hmm. and even then, the age of consent in Italy is uh, lower than it is here in America. So, okay. uh, I believe it's around 14 there. Ugh. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. That's still yeah. too young. Our character in the film, though minor, is 17 years old. Mm-hmm. So he's not like a minor minor. Yeah, that's and it, true. And again, that's that's your uh, your own personal viewers and listeners out there. Mm-hmm. If that's still like a bridge too far to you, you know, I, I can understand. 
but uh, it is not portrayed as a cautionary tale. It is more of a uh, more of a, a coming of age film, mm-hmm. you know, mixed with kind of like a summer fling film. It all takes place over the summer, so mm-hmm. uh, it is just kind of a budding romance between these two, and it is definitely. Uh, avoids a lot of uh, Lolita-esque predatory sort of vibes, you know? Mm. Like, it's more sweet and innocuous than anything else. So, and I will say, uh, I absolutely uh, adored the film. I, uh, I, it's one of those films that's paced in a way that's really languish, Mm. where not a lot happens in every scene, but it is more like a continuation of life, where every scene doesn't really start or begin just kind of feels like it's bleeding into the next scene hmm. so for me it's a film to very easily get lost in kind of like a daze like it has a very hypnotic kind of uh, trance to it almost mm-hmm. and I actually really like those kind of films I like films that kind of almost bore you into a sort of alternate mental state where mm-hmm. you're not really critically looking at the film in a scene to scene moment but you're just kind of letting it all wash over you and, of course, because it is shot in Italy, it has some incredibly lush landscapes, so it's very easy just to get lost in the scenery. Hmm. It's very easy to get lost in uh, Army Hammer's new twinkish bod, because uh, that was another thing that kind of <laughs> didn't bother me, but surprised me, because I could have sworn that the dude was, like, based on his past couple films, that he was, like, a, a beefcake, mm-hmm. like, really buff and stuff. In this film, he's very, like, trim and slim. And I mean, you know, he, he might have done that for this movie. He could well. have, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, because he always seemed like a like a big, tall, you know, strong, muscly man, almost like a Ryan Gosling type. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is also an incredible performance by our uh, lead actor, uh, Timothy. Damn it, what's his last name? I know he was in Lady Bird. That's all. Yes, he was, yeah. and uh, he has this wonderful physicality in this film because his character is kind of a. A young man suffering from general young man ennui. He's mm. something of a prodigy where he can, at his age, he's already writing like classical composer scores. He can play music incredibly on his piano and guitar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, being a, a child who is of like sort of two uh, countries, both Itali- Italy and America, he does have kind of this uh, listless quality to him where he seems to be just kind of dragging himself all the time. Like he's a tall gangly fella who's like just kind of easily collapses and everyone moves in like this really weird like snakish way but not in a predatory way just just like he has no bones in his body Mm -hmm. Uh, i love it so much though because it really works for the character and the way he adjusts it and scene to scene depending on what his character is going through it's really great especially like when his character is like really emotionally vulnerable vulnerable Mm -hmm. and putting himself out there and he's practically collapsing into army hammer's chest all the time it's it's a really great performance. Hmm. Uh, and th- Army Hammer is uh, a really great actor who is constantly... He's not utilized well. No, he's not. The thing is, like, he's really versatile, and he's also really funny. Mm-hmm. But because he looks so much like a classic leading man, he often gets cast in that archetype, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, with the Lone Ranger. Right. So it, it's great to see a performance like this from him where he can just play a very interesting character who's like at once kind of dismissive, but then just you realize that's sort of more aloof than anything. Mm-hmm. Like he's not really a dick. He just kind of comes off that way in the film. Like, you know, most Americans are right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, uh, I really enjoyed this film. It definitely, uh, it definitely leapt to the top of my, uh, my films of the year so far. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy for me to get lost in. Hasn't quite taken over my trifecta of Lady Bird, a ghost story, and Colossal, mm-hmm. but you know it's up there. Yeah, and I would definitely agree. Uh, Lady Bird is definitely. Um, I finally got to see it uh, last week, and it's definitely one of the one of the best films of the year uh, for me as well. But uh, yeah, no, uh, call me by your name. I'm gonna have to give that give that a go. I'm gonna give that a watch. Yeah, it's very interesting. All right, so I think that's a, a good enough transition to move on to our main segment. Mm-hmm. Oh, we didn't agree on this beforehand, but let's air <laughs> out some laundry here. Who yeah. should go first? Uh, I think it's Kisses Bang Bang because we did um, War of the Worlds first last episode. Yep. All right. Go <laughs> ahead. Set it up. All right. So uh, on our, our first pick, uh, which was my pick um, of our Shane Black Day, is uh, a lovely film by... Uh, 
by Shane Black. He it was his uh, I believe his writing and directing debut, wasn't it? This was his first directing. Yep. I believe, yeah. Um it is a, a neo noir uh well kind of a subversion on the neo noir um starring Robert Downey Jr. and uh Val Kilmer and uh Megan uh oh, Michelle Monahue. Michelle Monahue, that's right. I always forget her name. Um as uh, a down on his luck thief um, happens to accidentally, as he's running away from the cops, he walks in and wanders into an addition. And uh, he had just been shot, and his friend had just been shot. And he had to read lines for a story about someone who got their partner killed. So he ends up accidentally giving a very real performance because this exact thing was happening to him at that moment. Uh, so the producers who were running this audition then fly him out to L.A. Uh, to work uh, alongside a P.I. P- played by Val Kilmer and who goes by the name of uh, Gay... Shit, was it Gay Terry? No. Perry. Perry, damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and they end up getting themselves entranced in, the, uh, in a murder-kidnapping situation that then bleeds over to a former friend, high school friend of Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, who then, her sister, ends up getting killed. Um, There's a mystery around her death. And uh, they try to link the two cases together, and, uh, you know, hijinks ensues. Um, This is, I mean, this is one of my all-time favorite films. It's It's so witty. It's so funny. It's so charismatic. I mean... This was like the redemption. I mean, uh, I don't know how much anybody remembers, but at the time, this was 2005, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, career pretty much had plummeted uh, through his drug use and general attitude. Um, He's gone through rehab a few times. And uh, this was kind of like a, a big redemption s- story for Robert Downey Jr. You know, we, we think of him now as Iron Man, but at the time, he was he had hit pretty much bottom as far as like actors go. Yeah, I dare say there would be no Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man without Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, I, I would definitely agree. And as well as his redemption, it is also the redemption of Shane Black, That's who had too. a massive falling out with the Hollywood industry. Because mm-hmm. like we said earlier, he was selling these spec scripts for millions and millions of dollars, but they just weren't making money. And mm-hmm. funny enough, the film that ended up uh, almost killing his career was one that he didn't really have any direct involvement with. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll talk about it in a sec because it's a weird convoluted story, but a flop by the name of Cutthroat Island mm-hmm. starring Gina Davis plummeted. Yeah. And it, it took him down by proxy mm-hmm. for some reason. And so he, w- I remember I was reading an interview with him, and he said it got so bad to a point where he had a friend that just would not talk to him anymore, and he tried to reach out. Mm-hmm. And his friend told him, it's just like, listen, it's like, you're going to send me as much money as you think our friendship is worth, and then I will never talk to you again. Jeez. <laughs> People were like, he was getting cut off left uh-huh. and right. So, But Kiss Kiss Bang Bang showed the world that there was a place for, uh, for our man Shane Black again. Mm-hmm. And then from that, Robert Downey Jr. got him attached to Iron Man 3. Mm-hmm. Then he did The Nice Guys, and uh, now he's doing a Predator film. Yep. Which he was also the original writer of the f- original <coughs> Predator film. I think that was no, he was not. Wasn't he? No, he was just in it. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was just in it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay, so he just wrote the first two Lethal Weapons. Yep. Oh, okay. My bad. Sorry, audience. Uh, <laughs> We're so sorry, audience. Yeah, um, I apologize. But, yeah, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a really uh, great film. And uh, one that uh, I always kind of revisit just because it's a very, very watchable film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all great sort of neo-noir stories, it is just constantly full of twists and turns to the point where it kind of uses them both for actual suspense and mm-hmm. for parody, mm-hmm. or at least light parody, in that just our character is such a hapless doofus that mm-hmm. he literally like starts to lose count of like what is even going on. And, and you kind of do as well because the story shifts so much in, in such a brilliant way that... Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but you kind of find out the two cases aren't really uh, attached to each other. They yeah. just kind of force it and project it themselves onto it. Yeah, and uh, it also has a wonderful use of a voiceover. 
Mm-hmm. Where yeah. uh, Robert Downey's Great character shoot at one point literally stops the film to apologize for sloppy writing. Yeah, he's so. <laughs> he could stop. Wait, hold on. I meant to say this before, uh, like that whole scene. Mm-hmm. That yeah, it, just brilliant. And to go off of well, you know what we were talking about with Shane Black's history, you can definitely feel a lot of that in the film because. It's it's this insane and lovely uh, disparity between both having so much disdain for Hollywood in general, but also this incredible passion and love for film and story making. Yeah, you I see the two clash throughout the entire film. Yeah, I will say uh, it would a lesser filmmaker could have just turned this into a very hacky mm-hmm. L.A. is shitty kind of story, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's got its fair share of pot shots at L.A., mm-hmm. but they do feel more like window dressing and like just momentary scenes rather than like some films that would just harbor on it constantly and constantly, mm-hmm. you know. And it does still feel like that, you know, despite his being burnt out with that kind of stuff, he does still have a love of the town in that. I, I kind of forgot this on a rewatch. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is a bit of a dick about yeah. L.A. to the mm-hmm. point where he literally insults an entire club of women <laughs> when he says it's like someone grabbed America, shook it, and all the sane women were able to latch on to the East Coast and everyone else fell to the West Coast, mm-hmm. which in its own way is a pretty, pretty fucked up. Yeah, pretty incendiary awful. line. Clever, yeah. but incendiary. Yeah. Um, and then counters that with Michelle Monahue saying... Hey, it's like, who here in this club thinks Harry's an asshole? To yeah. which everyone raises their hand. Mm-hmm. Which I like that scene. It's a little bit of like a, okay, get over yourself. Yeah. Like, we're not, we're still people here, you know? That And, and that's another thing that I love about the film is uh, you constantly see this disparity of uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Even though he's a thief and he's kind of a, sh- he's kind of like a shit guy. Like, as much as he wants to be someone who is decent, he still makes terrible choices. And but he still has this weird air of moral superiority towards everyone throughout the film, even though he's just this hapless loser that really has no place looking down on anybody. Yeah, which is what makes his arc really nice in the mm-hmm. movie because, and it's also very like understated because mm-hmm. there is no like singular like line where it just basically says like, "Hey Harry, get over yourself. You're no better than anyone else here." Mm-hmm. You know, but you do get that sense of him like kind of like you know. As he delves further and further into the mystery, that he kind of has to stop with his grandstanding, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, also, this is a—he's uh, a bit of a uh, a weird figure in public life, but this was a phenomenal showcase for Val Kilmer oh, as an definitely. actor. So, I mean, Val Kilmer has always been a talented actor, like very talented to mm-hmm. the point of like obviously knowing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, by most behind-the-scenes stories, he doesn't seem. At least, I don't know, he doesn't come off as, like, a terrible guy, but he does come off like a bit of a pretentious guy. Mm-hmm, definitely. You know, which, you know, I mean, there were worse things to be, but there were better yeah. things to be. But his character work is just, uh, I, I, well, I would say unparalleled, but that's not exactly true. There are other character actors who I think. But it's still pretty incredible. It, yeah, he's still quite, uh, I mean, and he definitely brings it in this film um, with the sardonic uh, uh, gay Perry. I mean... He has some of the best lines, although that's also another thing that I love about the film is just that uh, I'm usually not a fan of like witty little quips, but the the ones that Shane Black writes are so good. They're just so they cut so deep and they just whenever he, uh, one of his characters says and we're probably going to talk about it in the next film because there's a lot of that in the next film as well. Um, whenever a character you can see just kind of like the decimation that the that the, what the person said because what they said was fucking awful, but it's also hilarious and just so well done. Well, also, I think what's good about his quips mm-hmm. is that his quips are very character centric, you know? That's true. Like I said, the West Coast line mm-hmm. is something only Harry's character in the film would say. Like mm-hmm. Michelle Monahue, Val Kilmer, not even Larry M- Miller as like the sleazy Hollywood mogul would mm-hmm. say that line just because it's so perfectly fitted to his specific character. Mm-hmm. You know, like so, yeah, even though most characters in this films are very quippy, their quips are like very centric to who they are. Mm-hmm. So instead, it feels like characters interacting rather than just the director or the writer had like a cabinet full of quips that they've been wanting to use and just threw them all into this movie. Yeah, it's uh, his films uh, a lot seem to be like if people didn't have filters, like that's kind of how, how it feels. It's definitely it feels very natural the way his dialogue has always felt very natural. 
in the way that it flows. But um, it definitely is. Some, it, but it's also unnatural in the fact that like these people are saying these things without any fear of repercussion at any moment. But uh, with that, I feel like that's very freeing um, as an audience member. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is uh, it really is Shane Black firing in all cylinders because he mm. knew he had to come back strong. And uh, as a director, he has some very uh, interesting choices. I will say the first time I saw this film, I was a little let down mm-hmm. by how visually OK it was, mm-hmm. you know, and looking back on it, it is still visually OK. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, what's like some other filmmakers, what he lacks in visual aesthetics, he makes up for in just such specific like character based decision also mm-hmm. to me there's no better action writer out there and we'll talk about a little bit of that in the next film because this film is very character centric there mm-hmm. are still a few action scenes i love how connective his action always is oh i know that and the end i mean we're not going to go you know through it beat by beat and describe it but the end action scene flows so naturally and but it's still encapsulates you so well for a lot of screenwriters when they write action they tend to write just kind of generic phrase like you know they chase each other Mm -hmm. or like and then the building collapses which Mm -hmm. is you know fine that's because they don't as a screenwriter it's literally your job not to overly like prepare stuff like that so the filmmaker can have some input Mm -hmm. and stuff like that so but with shane black can't help himself he writes such specific action beats Mm -hmm in his stuff and I've read like uh, some of his scripts and yeah the action is all baked in there he's not just like writing like you know then a car chase happens he has very specific things that happen in his car chases where you can see the connected tissue from A to B to C you know there's mm-hmm. always an escalation and a turn he literally white writes his action beats mm-hmm. like s- little mini stories they have their own little arcs and ebb and flows and you know resolutions and things like that which is how action should be the best action tends to be action where you can see like a clear story progression in it Mm -hmm. like each action scene is essentially its own little story and it's why there's so many action scenes out there that we think of like two movies off the top of my head Mm -hmm. that i think of that do it really poorly are stuff like the transformers movies and man of steel yeah films that if you stop and look at each individual shot is like that's a good shot that's a good shot that's a good shot. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at it as a whole, it just becomes a mush. Yeah. Because the, for all their differences, people like Michael Bay and Zack Snyder do not write good connect, connective mm-hmm. action. They just kind of write images or shots. They, all they see are like specific shots they want to put in there, mm-hmm. but they don't see the specific story of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing about the action is uh, going – it flows like we're saying you know flows very naturally um with going from beat to beat and uh it also leaves a lot of room even in the action shots for character development or even um as characters learning as there's one scene where um uh, robert Downey jr's character and uh gay perry Del kilmer um are being held up by uh, the main villain of the film in a parking lot and uh they uh, a cell phone goes off and uh and uh, one of the bad guys tosses it and robert dan jr's character who is a magician and thief so he's very quick and nimble with his hands you see very specific just run jab grab the phone answer it say hey we're in trouble before uh that the bad guys can do anything and i felt like you have this movie of of robert jr's character constantly just doing the wrong thing and not knowing what to do and in this one moment, he's finally learned that, oh, shit, this is I need to be a person of action at this point rather than a person of reaction. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's uh, action as a character moment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. A lot of the best action is, you know, like uh, the action that John McClane does in Die Hard is entirely different from what Neo does in The Matrix. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not a critique against either film. That's me praising both films because they both so get those characters, you know. Definitely. And Shane Black gets that, too. I'll say one last thing about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that will kind of lead into our next film, something mm-hmm. I like a lot about Shane Black. I always really like filmmakers who can just write in and put in these weird little details in scenes that almost seem like entirely unrelated and just such a weird moment. It's just like, huh, I never would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think one of my favorite little examples is a scene where uh, 
Robert Downey Jr. is having a tiff with Michelle Monaghan's character outside her uh, apartment, mm-hmm. and he's holding his hand on the door frame, and she slams it so hard that it cuts his finger off. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's just one of those like palpable things like, oh, yeah, if you leave a door there and someone actually slams it, fingers are very weak things. Like, <laughs> th- What's that urban legend that really, like, if you wanted to, you could bite into your pinky as easily as you bite into a carrot? It's mm-hmm. only, like, mentally that's stopping you. Yeah. So it is that weird, like, but it's a weird moment that still has, like, a real-life connection to it, mm-hmm. you know? And they, and they go back to it constantly throughout the film after that point like it's not just like a weird little oh this is a plot device like it it has a pretty big impact throughout the rest of the film yeah so i I love filmmakers who are kind of like constantly thinking outside the box i think ryan johnson the same way without Mm, getting spoilers there's a lot of weird little moments in the last jedi Mm -hmm. that are delightful like that so kiss kiss bang bang on a completely subjective unrelated scale i give it a uh a dashell hammett out of a uh, other film noir book writer <laughs> that I can't think of, or detective story writer. Yeah. Let's say uh, I give Kiss This Bang Bang um, a metric ton worth of penny dreadfuls. There we go. All yeah. right. Ugh, I feel bad. I could only think of Dashiell Hammett. I couldn't even think of like. I can't think of any right now. I wanted to say Raymond Carver, but he's not. But there is someone named Ray who writes a lot of like. Detective stories. I, see, I really only can even think of right now uh, Agatha Christie. That's really the that only one that mm, I can still counts. Yeah. Anyway, so let's use that to move on to our next uh, celebration of Shane Blackmas as mm-hmm. uh, we talk about the second film, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Mm-hmm. This is a film where he worked purely as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. and it was directed by Rennie Harland, who uh, was a very big staple in the 90s director scene for action films. He directed Die Hard 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, the love of my life, uh, Deep Blue Sea. Really, he, he is very much a filmmaker. I would call like a journeyman filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So someone who can produce a p- couple of really good films, but without having like a super specific distinctive style, mm-hmm. and also n- not you know incapable of producing some pretty bad dreck, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but Long Kiss Goodnight also stars uh, Gina Davis. Uh, she stars as this sort of atypical suburban housewife living in this small idyllic town where, because of an accident, it unlocks this weird physicality in her where all of a sudden she is agile and occasionally dangerous with a knife. And as it turns out, she is kind of a sleeper agent mm-hmm. who has this whole other personality who is this incredibly, like, dangerous and sort of amoral vixen who is like a mercenary for hire. Mm-hmm. And so she goes on a sort of a journey to find out who she really is with this scummy, low-rent P.I. played by one Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of Shane Black joints, this uh, takes a lot of twists and turns. You learn a lot about a convoluted backstory. Mm-hmm. It's uh, connected to other people who have guns, as it usually goes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love this film dearly. Like I said, Rennie Harlan is a very solid action filmmaker. And mm-hmm. I always thought, given the right material, he could really knock it out of the park. I think he did that with Deep Lucy, which for me is maybe one of the greatest B-movies of all time. And I really think he did that here with, uh, with Shane Black's script. Mm-hmm. Mostly because it's also just, like most Shane Black stuff, has very fun character interactions and really inventive action scenes. And there's this is a great film for setup and payoff. Oh, definitely. Almost every moment in this film is all about setting something up and then paying it off later on. Mm-hmm. Like there's no stone unturned in this film. It is even though it is essentially just an action film, it is one of the most detailed and like crisp action films to date. That yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um no, I, I also I just I adored watching that film um while i was watching it i mean towards the end it would just completely encapsulated me uh, it and, and i love it because it's um partially because i love it because it's so cartoony uh when i was watching it it really reminded me of uh raising arizona and these kind of very um uh, over the top action scenes but they're so entertaining that they don't take you out of it like there's one point that uh, Gina Davis takes her daughter and like throws her from the house to the treehouse, and it just doesn't 
uh, or there's a lot of explosions where people are getting pushed back like 80 feet or jumping out of three-story windows and uh, they have got cuts and bruises but otherwise fine <laughs> and which is kind of like uh, the staple of all action films is when people are doing these over-the-top things that they should die from. I mean, without mild spoilers, there is a scene towards the end in the big climax where a character almost literally comes back to life. Mm-hmm. Like, it's pretty much thought to be dead and then just kind of wakes up. Mm-hmm. Which I was very glad because I really like this character a lot. Yeah, so. me too. Uh, that's the thing, too, is that, uh, yeah, it is a very big, fun cartoonish movie so mm-hmm. that means the characters are also allowed to be larger than life and not just like a couple of the lead characters almost every character in this movie has like their own defined personality mm-hmm. and that was the same way with kiss kiss bang bang like every person who's in a scene that has some lines you can immediately take something away from them mm-hmm. i was like oh that's who this person is you know it doesn't feel like someone is just like oh i'm just here to say the thing and you'll mm-hmm. buy i'm on my way yeah, you don't have any of the telegram boy who goes walking by and says, here's your card, mister. you got a tel- line on the phone. Exactly. Yeah. Or even just like, there is even a, a, a character here played by Brian Cox who, mm-hmm. in terms of function of the plot, is more or less kind of like an exposition transitionary character mm-hmm. who's there to kind of like fill in some of the holes that are left. But his character is so fun. He's like this doctor who is also like <laughs> a rude asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, makes dick jokes at them mm-hmm. and it's like okay and also it's brian cox who's yeah. like um, he's delightful in almost anything you give him so even if you just give him the semblance of a character he's gonna run with it and uh oh yeah and and definitely speaking of the of the brian cox scene what i love another thing that i love about this film is that i can tell that shane black really loved this script i mean you, this is one of those few scripts where you can tell that the writer really liked what he did and then there's also proof in that because there's a lot of scenes that are both in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3 that come from this film. That I feel like he probably just thought, hey, this was a great movie that no one appreciated. I'm going to put it in some other movies that are make them great as well. Um, I can't remember if, uh, if I read in an interview that Shane Black didn't necessarily disown this film, but maybe wasn't a fan of the changes Rennie Harlan made. Mm-hmm. But uh, without having read the original script, I got to say, I feel like Rennie Harlan was a really good pick. I do, too. For the Shane Black film. I mean, this is especially especially good for an action film because, you know, looking back on it, 90s, the whole decade in terms of action films was kind of bad. Yeah. I mean, like there we didn't really get any like seminal classics unless it was in the very tail end of the 90s mm -hmm. or from a foreign markets, you know, hard boil and stuff like that. Right. Th- that's pretty much how we got any sort of decent action mm-hmm. for the most part. American filmmaking action was not in a great place. No. I'm going to say they didn't know what to do after the diehards. They just they didn't know where to go from that. So so much to the point where they're like just do it again. Which, which is one thing that I love about cuz you know, cuz this came out in 96, which was a year after Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um and I love it because cuz it's it's almost a parody of the Die Hard movies. It's all, it's almost a direct parody, honestly, is what or what I got from it. Even at the end, Gina Davis is in a, a white tank top, and like I think she doesn't have her shoes on either. <laughs> like, <laughs> and um, uh, it, they just, but at the same time, it's not really making fun of action movies. You can tell that this is an action movie that loves action movies, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's just it's just a lot of fun to watch that progress as uh, she goes from the mild manner, you know, uh, wife and mother to the CIA trained assassin. Yeah, and speaking of which, Gina Davis. Uh, so after this film, Gina Davis, not based on any sort of personal information I know, mm-hmm. seems like she really wanted to be an action star or before it. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd done a lot of more serious and comedic films. But it seemed like, you know, she was really itching for that Sigourney Weaver role of just, I want to be a badass, stone-cold action babe. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that, much as I love Gina Davis as an actress, she kind of, like, can't pull that off just generally. Like, if you just say, like, you're just going to be the action chick, then it's just kind of like, well, this is an awkward fit for me. She just doesn't have that natural action star persona to her just her whole physicality is mm-hmm. just 
very different. It's the same reason that like Ben Affleck does not have. Lord knows he tries. He can get as buff as he want. Ben Affleck will never just be the action star. He mm-hmm. has to have a character to play with it. So it's great that Gina Davis is actually given a character to play and that even her action persona is not just generic action babe. Her action persona is something of a psychopath at first. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, you can definitely tell that there's a lot of sociopathy in her character when, especially when it first starts to come out and she's talking to her daughter and she's like, "Hey, her daughter, like her daughter falls down on some ice and she's like, "Hey, don't fucking cry. You get up. You get up right now." Like, which in the moment seems like a kind of a cruel and crazy scene, but it pays off. It does. It yeah. pays off later in the film. And the way she, uh, especially early in the film, the way she finds a way to transition back and forth between that, you know, even in just small scenes where, like, you know, the burglar breaks in and uh, scares her at first, but then the way she just physically takes charge, even in her, like, gigam gown, mm-hmm. is uh, really great, you know? Uh, it's also, again, it's got some very weird Shane Blackian moments. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, this scene in the very beginning. So there's a big car crash, and this car crash is kind of like what sort of mentally reawakens this uh this part of her mm-hmm. uh and that's signified visually in this wonderful scene where she hits a deer the deer is like clearly suffering so she walks over to the deer and snaps its neck mm-hmm. and it's a very wonderful payoff uh, a wonderful setup actually for her arc that's going to come around because it's a wonderful like moment that's a melding of her two personas because mm-hmm. on one hand holy shit she just snapped a deer's neck yeah that's insane <laughs> But on another hand, you got to look at it. It seems like that is kind of a mercy killing Mm -hmm. because, yeah, in that scene, the deer was clearly suffering and was long past the point of surviving with that kind of car wreck. So it's a very, very interesting way to kind of start off this uh, this character. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and it was especially to um, show kind of the dichotomy between her two halves of herself. And they end up becoming though. That was one, I think one thing of, uh, about the film that I didn't particularly care for is that there wasn't as much conflict between the two characters as I think I would have liked, especially in the transition. She kind of there's at one point where she kind of goes from A to B. Yeah. But or from B to A, since the more psychopath is her original uh, uh, character or, you know, person. But um, but at the same time, that's just such a one small flaw that I really actually don't care that much about it either because it's just so there's so much to this film uh, and it's very evenly paced. So you're never you never get too exhausted, but you also never get bored. Yeah, I guess you could argue that uh, this character and uh, the way Shane Black initially sets her up has such potential that you could possibly write just a very serious drama mm-hmm, about this. But uh, Shane Black and Rennie Harlan were both like, uh, fuck that, let's just make an action film. Mm-hmm. So for some, it could s- they could see it as kind of like squandered potential. I know the first time I saw this film, I definitely thought the same thing. But mm-hmm. then every time I rewatch it, I just get so lost in the moments, you know? Mm-hmm. And also, it's a very... Uh, it's a very typical role of him, but it's always lovely to see Samuel Jackson and these kind of things. There's oh, just yeah. there's just no one who can play this role like that he does. And he also has what has to be hands down, maybe my favorite Shane Black line of all time. It was a good line. Which is when he says to a character, it's like, you know what they say when you make assumptions? You make an ass out of you and umptions. <laughs> yeah, that was Something pretty good. Something I quote to this day, uh, I love so dearly. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it, yeah, this is a, a a wonderful, silly 90s action film. Uh, it's like this and Point Break were maybe the only things before like 1999 that we got that were worth anything. Oh, wait, Face Off came off in 97, right? Face Off is a classic, so uh, that too. I don't know. I don't know if I particularly agree with that. I mean, Die Hard Shut with a Vengeance fuck is fucking... That's a, that's a classic. Oh, I would not agree with that. Uh, so let's... Let's I think we'll we'll do save that for a, yeah, a, yeah, an we'll argument episode. There we go. <laughs> so yeah, but Long Kiss Goodnight, we can't agree. That is true. It's a wonderfully trippy and weird action film that even has like a the story with the daughter. It seems like it gets sidelined for a bit, mm-hmm. you know, in a way just to kind of uh just make the film just a fun action film, but it comes back into play later on mm-hmm. in a way that creates a couple of really nice emotional beats. Mm-hmm. That uh, again, I I don't want to spoil, and uh, I will say it it does create one weird moment for our lead villain, who for the most part is just a one-dimensional, although very charismatic villain. This guy's oh, yeah. name is Craig Bierko. I've seen him in a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, he was actually kind of a sketch 
comedy actor for a while. Mm-hmm. I know he was in Mr. Show a bunch of times. Yeah, he was in he was in Mr. Show. Uh, I think his presence here is delightful. Yeah, Just, I wish I he's one of those guys who I now wish he had been more. He'd been in a villain more often in other things. He's so great in it. Yeah, and at first his villain is probably like the shallowest character in that he is. Just a villain, mm-hmm. but he has such a weird vibe to it that uh, Shane Black and Rennie Harlan seem to notice that and just be like, just make sure that the guy playing this is fun. Yeah, it has a, his own weird energy to it. He, he harkens to me like a like a Sam Rockwell, not not in that they were similar in the way they act, but they both had this similar charisma to them that you just can't escape. Yeah, yeah, and uh, again, like there's also a wonderful little moment near the end uh, involving. Uh, an emotional beat with him where you realize something about him that uh, does kind of change the way you look at the character. Even if from that point on, he is still in just villain mode. Mm. It was a scene that kind of caught me off guard, I'm going to be honest. And I'm sorry, I don't want to harp on a scene that I'm not going to describe for the sake of spoilers, but mm-hmm. uh, it was lovely. Uh, it was a nice little scene. I like that a movie like this is not afraid to tug at the heartstrings. Yeah, no. It, and, it, and it also flows so naturally as well. I mean, just that's the one thing I love about Shane Black's films, even though they're these weird tales of kind of impossible circumstances and impossible characters, they all so feel natural in the moment. Like every everything in the film builds towards everything that's happening with the characters and the plot. And you never for a moment are taken out and say, OK, this is enough. I can't do this. He's one of the best uh, writers when it comes to plot momentum, mm-hmm. both in like the large overarching plot and just mm-hmm. in a scene-to-scene plot. That's true. It, almost none of his films have a f- scene that feels like it's wasted. Even if it's maybe not driving the plot forward, there's at least a joke or a character moment or something there that just it's always moving. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, I love this film dearly. I'm always happy to see Shane Black when okay. uh, he is doing anything. Uh, I'm very curious to see what he does with Predators. I feel... Yeah, I'm 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 on board. I'm I'm excited. Yeah, I Shane Black for me is one of those filmmakers that I basically he's like Ryan Johnson to me. Mm-hmm. Ron basically like, yeah, this is going to be good. Let's just see to what degree of good it's going to be. And if it's not, I'll emotionally wrestle with that later. Yeah, I I mean Ooh, I, I'm sorry. That reminds it. me. This this uh I, I want to talk about the film Cutthroat Island that killed Shane's black career mm-hmm. because it is related to this film The Long Kiss Goodnight. Mm-hmm. So Cutthroat Island was a very, very bad pirate film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starred Matthew Modine and Gina Davis, and it was directed by Rennie Harland. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out, and at the time, it was one of the biggest flops for the studios, so much so that it killed a lot of careers. Specifically, it killed the careers of three people in the moment, Rennie Harland, Gina Davis, and Shane Black, because their next film, Post Cutthroat Island, was one long kiss goodnight. Mm-hmm. And the studio and audiences were so burnt out by that terrible hit they all checked out for this one. This film did not do good at box no. office. It had to become a cult hit for it to get any sort of notoriety. So Cutthroat Island, if you're wondering why Shane Black disappeared from Hollywood for so long, along with his mounting drug problem and things like that, Cutthroat Island was sort of the uh, the initiator of that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen uh, Cutthroat Island personally, but... Um, it's very interesting. It is like... Pirate films are hard to pull off. Because they are very oh, much yeah. from a bygone era. So mm-hmm. you either have to try to update it, sort of like this isn't technically a pirate film. But if you're going to make like a ship-based film, you have to either update it and modernize it, so like Master and Commander did. Mm-hmm. Or you can play into that schlocky B-movie vibes and then sort of create a throwback, like Pirates of the Caribbean 1 did. Mm-hmm. Basically, Cutthroat Island is a terrible version of Pirates of the Caribbean 1. So, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean 4. Yeah. <laughs> They're more or less on the same level. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting watch just to see like the kind of film that could collapse mm-hmm. a, num- a numerous amount of careers, you know, the same way that like sort of any like studio-destroying film is interesting to see, a Heaven's Gate-type scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I w- yeah, I would want to have to watch it because uh, I can't think of a, of a Shane Black film that uh, I've seen that had... Um that wasn't like a detective story. Oh, Shane Black didn't write it. Oh, he he. What did he do on it? Just nothing. It? So why did it ruin his career? Because it ruined the uh, careers of Gina Davis and Rennie Harland, uh. and it basically tangentially took down Shane Black with it. Oh, like that's how bad this film was. It took down careers of people who weren't even directly involved with it. Oh man, that's that. Now that's rough. I thought I thought Shane Black had wrote uh, written it. 
Oh, that's uh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, out of morbid curiosity, sure. But I will say, as a film, Cutthroat Island is a, a bore to watch. So oh, yeah. I definitely, it's a background movie if you're ever going to watch it. I think I, I'll just wait until if I ever happen to catch it on a TV channel. There you go. So, Cutthroat Island. Almost destroyed Shane Black, but he came back swinging. And man, did he come back. Yes, so... Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the Kiss Duos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is our Kiss episode. So what would your uh, 100% subjective rating for the Long Kiss Goodnight be? Nine snapped deer necks. <laughs> Nine snapped deer necks. Um, I've got, uh, let's say, uh, 15 Samuel Jackson uh, hiding a pistol in his underpants next to his junk. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> All right. So before we go on this most merriest of Shane Black mists, we do have one segment we're going to do at the end. Mm-hmm. Something a little different for listeners. I almost, I always want to call them viewers for some reason. Uh, they will be. I mean, they are. I have cameras everywhere. Yeah. But that's a, that's a different site. Um, <laughs> please go to it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's how I earn my, my McDonald's cups that, that you hear me drinking out of. That's sad. Your life is sad, Jackson. It is. It is very <laughs> much so. So our next segment is what we're going to do is uh, me, and, when me and Jackson inform this podcast, even though it's called Real to Real, we talked about the idea that it just would cover underrated media. Mm-hmm. So we were never against the idea of covering any other type of media. It just had to be something we we're passionate about. Like we don't want to talk about Baroque art if it's something that neither Jackson nor I have passions about because that would be insulting to us and it would be insulting to baroque art because i'm sure there's someone out there who cares about that shit and i think that it would also be insulting to our listeners because um if you know whoever is listening now i don't know how many or what i know we don't have a huge audience but i know we we get listens hi mom (laughs) Uh, my mom doesn't know how to use things so yeah i know she's not listening but um yeah we we definitely want to make sure that we're we're not catering to ourselves or anyone else, but at the same time, we want to bring a very wide swath of different media for you to consume. I mean, that that is what we are anymore. We are consumers, and we yeah. love all types of media. Absolutely, which is why in this segment, Jackson and I are going to give our underrated song choices. Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, dare to venture into the, uh, the medium of music. Mm-hmm. Because as one man once said, if music be the food of love, sing on, sing on. <laughs> so I'm going to go first because Jackson is having a tiff. In yeah, his I've got a couple of mole in my head. I'm going to I'm gonna pull a quick one. So I am going to recommend a 2013 song called Control by mm-hmm. a British band known as Desperate Journalist. And it is Journalist Singular. Uh, this is a song I actually stumbled onto because... For my just a small personal history of mine, I have pretty bad musical tastes. Mm-hmm. I tend to, I'm a dancer first and foremost. That's kind of what my identity was for a while. So I tend to like pretty easy pop music. I think Kesha is untouchable, mm-hmm. not just modern, uh, very good soulful Kesha, but even trashy Kesha. Mm-hmm. I loved Lady Gaga. Is a big. I'm a big fan of her. Sia is maybe my favorite pop musician right now. Just to tell you how basic my tastes are when it comes to that kind of music. Mm-hmm. So when I stumbled upon this song, I was a little taken aback that I enjoyed it as much as I did because it is a post-punk song, very much in the veins of Joy Division, uh, The Smiths, and bands like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't know much about this movement, but I do know the general sound of post-punk now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I like about this song, more so than the lyrics, because for me, I'd listen to music first, lyrics second. They do have songs where their lyrics resonate with me very wonderfully, but this song I love because it just has such an immediate pulse to it. Uh, it goes back and forth between these shimmering guitars, this really wonderful looping bass line that's constantly playing in the background. Uh, the lead lady's vocalist voice I really love. She has a lot of like long-held-out notes that she's just borderline screaming, and it's just really powerful. For me, more so than any type of other emotion, this is just a gut punch of a song. Mm-hmm. I love it. It strikes me for a post pop, for a post punk song. I don't know if it th- this is typical for the rest of the genre, mm-hmm. but it's a song that really gets me like worked up and hype and ready to do something. Yeah, 
Yeah, that sounds great. I'm. Uh, I haven't listened to it yet. I haven't heard it, but I'm definitely going to give it a listen, uh, especially when I attach the YouTube of it on the episode. I recommend it. Um, so for for uh, my pick, I'm going to go with um, "Don't Move" by a band name of Fantagram. Um, you may have heard them on the radio in the last year. They had uh, they had a hit single that came out, uh, I believe, last summer or last earlier this year, at some point. Um, and I hadn't really heard of them, and if we backtrack a little bit and just talk about my general music taste, I'm pretty eclectic when it comes to what I like. Um, I'm not particularly in any kind of genre. Um, I'm, I don't even know if I'm really into specific bands that much. For me, a lot of it's either albums or songs, with the notable exception of Radiohead. Radiohead's like the one band that I listen to their whole discography, no problem. Um, and I usually do when I'm writing. But... For for this song, and, and I've been listening to Fanagram a good bit. Um, not all of their songs are particularly, you know, wonderful and great, but uh, they do have some really, really good songs and really great music videos as well. Um, the music video for Don't Move is just this really wonderfully, um, like, abstract music video that tells a story of basically the entire song, while being very poppy, it's very. It, it kind of reminds me of like a, a more dancey, less extravaganza Lady Gaga, but more musically, uh, mu- not not one note, but a string through a music plot that goes through the uh, the entire song, and it's a lot of it's about like toxic masculinity and how that affects uh, women in a relationship. And uh, it's one thing I really love about their music is. They say a lot without say without harping on about anything. They their lyrics are very poignant and their music is very well put together. Um, it's not a style of music that I usually listen to, but it is so well done that I can't help but love it. There you go. So that's two uh, recommendations for you. Mm-hmm. For you're always looking for new music. Controlled by Desperate Journalist and Don't Move by Fantogram. There you go. And uh, as Jackson said, he will attach some uh, YouTube links. Mm-hmm. There is a music video for Control. Uh, I didn't think it was particularly noteworthy, but I love the song so much that uh, I think that's okay. Yeah, give it a watch. Yeah, so that is going to be this episode of Real to Real. You know, we celebrated Shane Blackmas. I think uh, the only way to go out is with the very festive tradition of uh, we wish you a merry Shane Blackmas. <laughs> that's true. All right, guys, that's, I think, the last uh, last one for this year, but we'll see you guys next year at the movies. Check the stockings for Shane Black. <laughs>